Charles Tindley was an African-American pastor and songwriter. He was born in 1851 to a, a free mother and a slave uh, father. This young man had a great mind and basically he taught himself how to read and he taught himself uh, theology through correspondence. Um, as an American Methodist minister and music composer, one, one person described Mr. Tenley this way. Charles Albert Tenley was not only a good composer, he was very unique. He knew his Bible and could translate its language into the soft, picturesque, sonorous language of his people, and ultimately for all people. This man was the progenitor of black American gospel music. He was a singer and composer in one. He uh, surrendered to the ministry as a young man, and he actually worked in a Methodist church as a janitor serving in that church. And as God would work it out, he later became the very pastor of the church that he served uh, as a janitor. The church he took there in Philadelphia went from 200 parishioners to over 12,000 members in the 1920s. In the 1920s, in the late uh, part of that decade, the church, the, in honor of their pastor, they changed their name from the Methodist Episcopal Church of Philadelphia to Tenley Chapel. They named it after him, and I checked just this week online, and it is still a thriving church in Philadelphia, and it's called Tenley Chapel. Remember, he was a gospel singer, hymn writer, as well as a preacher. He composed 45 different hymns. He wrote not only the the tunes, but also the words, and he would write these songs in conjunction with the very sermon that he would be preaching on the Lord's Day. One of those songs you recognize, and it fits so perfectly with what the Apostle John is teaching us in the Word of God. Have you ever heard these words? Trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But He'll guide us with His eye. And we'll follow God till we die. We will understand it better. You help me? By and by. By and by. When the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we will tell the story how we overcome, and we will understand it better. By and by. The Apostle Peter tells us that, As beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3.3 says this. This is a very ominous passage of Scripture to me. I, I think I will spend a lifetime wrapping my heart and mind around 1 Thessalonians 3.3 when Paul describing trials, tribulations, and afflictions. He says, as you know, as a child of God, you were destined, called, and appointed to suffer for His name. The Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 1, our text this morning, verses 9 through 11, the context and the theme of our text is one of suffering. It's one of difficulty and trials. In the first three centuries of Christendom, one emperor, one tyrant after another demanded that the early church worship him, and when they would not worship him, then he would have them martyred. He would have them killed for their faith. And John, in this milieu, in this epic of time around A.D. 100. He's about 90, 95 years of age. 
As he is exiled on the island of Patmos, a rock quarry island, a Roman penal colony where the emperor sent those who were rebellious. It was also a place where they sent rapists and murderers. They exiled them on this 10-mile wide, 5-mile long island called Patmos right in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And John finds himself there in this crucible of pain and, and suffering and difficulty. And I remind you, John is suffering for God precisely because he's doing the will of God. Trials dark on every hand, and he could not understand all the ways that God would lead him to the promised land. And in, and in that midst of that crucible of pain and suffering, God speaks to him and tells him, this is what I want you to write, and this is what I want you to send to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 1. And by the way, we are studying the great apocalypse uh, verse by verse. All 22 chapters we're studying on Sunday morning. Yes, people are asking me all the time, yeah, I know you're teaching Revelation, but tell me you're not teaching it on Sunday morning, right? I said, no, I'm teaching it on Sunday, Sunday morning. Well, you know you can't do that, don't you? I mean, the people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that revelation, that spooky, scary, apocalyptic stuff. And I say, sir, I beg to differ. People really are hungry for the Word of God. People really do want to know what the Bible has to say about the future. So, so he says, I, John, both your brother and companion, your Adelphos and your Koinonias, interesting, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance or patience of Jesus Christ. I, John, was on the island that is called Patmos for, and you can translate that preposition with a causal emphasis, because for the Word of God and for the testimony, or martyria, where we get the English word martyr, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Mm, come on. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when I saw Him. And when He appeared to me and He told me to do certain things, I saw Him and I heard behind me a voice as a loud trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it. You know, Jesus, when he speaks, he, he's very specific. <laughs> he says, write and send this book to the churches in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and then to Laodicea. Father, we come before you, and we're so very honored this morning to be able to study this holy book, this wonderful book of Re Revelation unveiling the apocalypse. Lord, we ask you now to speak to us, for we are your children and we want to know you better. God, we as a, as a radiant church here, we, will, we want to worship you intimately and we want to study your word in depthly. God, we want you to challenge us today. Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for the church of the living God that we would be motivated, encouraged, rebuked, do whatever you want to do in our heart and our midst today, oh God. I pray also, Lord, for those among us, many. Lord, there are many here today that don't have a personal, vibrant relationship with you. I pray, God, today would be the day of their salvation, that they would recognize 
that being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, is the most difficult thing in the world, and it's the greatest thing in the world. And they would rise up to the challenge through the power of the Holy Spirit. They would repent. They would believe. And they would call on the name above every name, Jesus Christ. And they would be born again by the Spirit of God. God, I'm asking you, I'm praying this very day that you would save many for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Tertullian was an early church father in the third century. And he was a, a gifted apologist. And he was also one who was very polemical in his writings. And there were two different divisions, if you will, the early church fathers. Some were apologists, and they gave defenses for the faith. And then there were those called polemicists. And they would, they would not go on the defensive. They would go on the offensive, and they would defend the Christian faith. And they would do it in a very powerful, eloquent way. And Tertullian was one of those. And he writes... In the early church, in this milieu of suffering, and he, and he writes these words, If the Tiber River reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move or if the earth does, if there is a famine or if there is a plague, the cry is at once, Christians to the lion. End of quote. You know, I was thinking about that quote this week, and I was thinking about, you know, the more things change the more they stay the same. There is a very powerful, almost palpable sense of antagonism against the church of the living God, against Jesus Christ and his followers that we see not only in AD 95, but we're seeing it and really powerfully revisited it in 2014. And I believe with all of my heart, I, I truly believe that unless God sends a supernatural Revival, like, like the revival in the first great awakening in 1726, or the second great awakening in 1792, or the third great awakening in 1858, or the fourth great awakening in 1904. Do you realize 1904 was the last time we've experienced a global, massive, awesome, spiritual awakening? The kind of awakenings that we read about in, in the textbooks, in the history books. And I believe with all my heart, unless God sends a supernatural movement of His Spirit across our land, then I believe we're in times for great judgment, great difficulty, and it could just catapult us right into the Great Tribulation. I believe the days are that dark. But I also believe God has raised us up for such a time as this. Hey, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the most exciting time ever to be alive. We could be the terminal generation. Jesus could come back and get us any moment. But if he doesn't and he delays and he allows us to go through hard times, then I want to be found faithful. Man, I want to be found faithful preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to stand for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And my dear friends who are about to go out into faraway places, to the uttermost places of the earth, may Almighty God strengthen you, and may you stand firm. Some of you may not ever come back to the United States. Some of you will probably lose your life serving the Lord, serving the Lord in another context. But may your testimony come back to us here in Austin, Texas, that you were faithful to God. You were faithful to God unto death, and so were we. These are intense times, friends. I don't, I don't know if you realize that. I, I, there's so much that I want to say today, and I, 
you know, when I get to six pages of notes, that means long sermon, long sermon. And so I just, I just want to go through this text with you because I don't think it's a, by chance that our, that our friends are with us today, and I just so happen to be preaching in verses 9 through 11. First of all, notice with me a word of identification. Third time John does this. The third time in nine verses he says, I, John, he identifies himself. He is clearly none other than the Apostle John. He's about 95 years of age. He is the only living apostle, original apostle. He served as a pastor of Ephesus for 30 years. He wrote the gospel that bears his name around A.D. 70, the gospel of John. He wrote the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And now God has entrusted... God entrusted the mother of Jesus to this man. And God now entrusts the future of the world to this man. This is a faithful man of God. And he's suffering for Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos. And now God has entrusted this to John. It's none other than the beloved apostle John. And I want to say this again. He is not on the island of Patmos suffering for God because he's done something wrong. Okay? He has done everything that God has asked him to do. Have you ever noticed that? You could be doing every single thing that God has commanded you to do, and instead of life being easy, and instead of life letting up, you find yourself that life has even got more difficult. And you want to say, well, man, I must have missed God. I must, the, I must have missed the will of God. No, you are precisely in the will of God and a confirmation and an affirmation that you're in the will of God. Not that everything is going great and rosy and grand, but that everything is hard and it's difficult, at least for now. And John would say, I've done everything he's asked me to do, and here I am on the island of Patmos. Blessed be his holy name. Glory to the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, John, your brother and your fellow companion in the gospel, I write these words unto you, the seven churches of Asia Minor. He reminds me of another pastor. I love this pastor. I remember reading his biography a number of years ago, but I was reminded of him as I was studying this text. His name was Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor in London, England. His wife was an optometrist. He married a doctor. He was a medical doctor. He actually treated some of the royal family in London. He was a prominent physician, a brilliant man. But God messed his life completely up. You know what I'm saying? God called him to be a pastor. And I often think about his wife. I wonder if she was like, he didn't call me to be a pastor. He called me to marry a doctor, not, not a pastor, but she didn't do that at all. She said, hey, God, listen, God's just not going to call you. You with me? God's not just going to call you. He's going to call us. And so God called them into the gospel ministry. They go to a little church in Wales running about 50. In 10 years, they're running 500. G. Campbell Morgan says, I want you to come. I want you to take my place. I want you to pastor this great church here in London, England. And he did. And he went. And God used him powerfully. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, his name is synonymous with biblical exposition, and he traveled all over the world, and and he was such a prominent, well-known pastor. But here's what people said about him when they met him. They said, you know, the most outstanding characteristic of the good doctor is, listen down, he is humble and he is approachable. That kind of reminds me of John. 
Do you notice the Bible does not say, uh, this is John, I am the eminent, the amazing, wonderful apostle, the person that leaned upon Jesus' breast, and I am the author of all this amazing literature, and now I am going to pontificate and tell you little earthlings what it is you need to do. No, listen, if John had that attitude, he never would have been used mightily of God. Listen, if you got an arrogance issue, if you think you're all that and a bag of chips, listen, God's going to pass you by, and he's going to find somebody who has a humble heart, a broken spirit, and, and, and God's going to choose him over he's going to choose you. You say, well, what about my, all my academia and my intelligence and, and my erudition and all my brilliance, Brother Danny? Don't you just think I'm something? No, I don't, you know? I don't. I, I tell you, I, well, somebody asked me the other day, said, preacher, what would you rather have in a man of God? Would you rather have a great mind or a great heart? I said, that is, that is, that is not even an issue for me. I mean, man, give me somebody that's got a heart for Jesus Christ. I'll take him any day over somebody who's arrogant and has, even though they have a brilliant mind. Just talk to a man just this week, a young man. Not to mention any names, Logan, but man, it was good talking to you the other day. This young man has surrendered his heart and his life to Jesus Christ and and he's one of those strange birds. He got a great mind and a great heart. But I shared with him as I'm sharing with you. Listen, the thing that God has an affinity with, and the thing that God uses powerfully is a humble, broken spirit that says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And John says, That's me. I, John. And notice the way he describes himself further. He says, I, John, your Adelphos, your brother. And I am your Koinonios. I am your co-participant. The, the Greek word there is koinonia. It's where we get the word fellowship, and the word literally means somebody who shares in the same circumstances as others. And John gives three areas in which he's going to share as a brother and as a fellow servant of Jesus Christ. He says, number one, we're going to fellowship together in tribulation. The word means to be afflicted. It means to fall upon difficult, arduous, Hard times. Dr. Robert Thomas in his wonderful commentary on Revelation says, and I quote, Fellowship in suffering is one of the most frequent, if not the most frequent, among the stock of primitive Christian ideas. This is an indispensable element of Christian discipleship and following the example of Jesus. The most defining, characteristic, indispensable attribute and trait is that we are brothers and sisters together and we will suffer tribulation because of our relationship with, with the Lord. Adoniram Judson, some of our missionary friends here, you, you know his story. And by the way, if you don't know his story, and if you are a missionary or if you are someone surrendered to the gospel ministry, I think it is mandatory reading that you read Courtney Anderson's book, To the Golden Shore. I read this just a couple of years ago, and one of my mentors uh, told me, he said, listen now, young man, he said, if you read that book, you, you, better, you better get ready for God to speak to you in a powerful way. And that's what Paige Patterson told me, and he was right. I don't know that I was so prepared for what I read in that book. And I'm not going to tell you the whole contents of it, but I will tell you this. Adoniram Judson, he knew what it meant to suffer and to participate with his brothers in Christ. He and Anne, as they sailed out of America, and by the way, he's known as the father of American missions, the first missionary to be sent from America overseas. He and his wife Anne went on the boat as Congregationalists, read the New Testament, and, and became Baptist. 
and got baptized by one of William Carey's associates when they got over to, uh, to Burma. As he's serving the Lord, witnessing for Christ, the Burmese king accused him of being a spy for the British government. And so for 20 months, he suffers in a horrible prison. From 1824 to 1826, he suffers as a prisoner of war. And the only thing he was guilty of was being faithful uh, to the gospel. And Anne, or Nancy, his wife, she would care for him. She would go from city to city, place to place, ministering to him. And in that process, she contracted uh, uh, meningitis, and she died. She was the first of three wives, by the way, that he would outlive and bury on the mission field. After the, or before the war, it took them nine years to baptize 18 people. Think about that. Nine years. Seven years didn't baptize anybody. Nine years, and they baptized 18 converts to Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just going to get real with you for just a minute. If I got put in prison... And I only see nine people come to faith in Christ. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going to be going, what in the world is going on? God, have you forgotten me? God, did you even call me? I don't know. Maybe it's time I go back home. But he didn't do that. This is what he did. He said, oh, mercy. No, he said, I'm not going anywhere. I still got to translate this Bible in the Burmese language. And I believe we're on the precipice of God doing amazing, amazing things. Within five years after that war, you know what happened? They baptized 373 people, 217 in one year. Listen, many times, many, many times, man, right on the, er, the verge, on the precipice of a breakthrough, when, when, when it's the hottest and when the trials are the darkest and the trials on every hand and you really don't understand what in the world God is doing, you're at a moment, my friend, you're at a breakthrough. You can either quit and give up, or you can say, God, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to give you everything I got. And Lord, it may even take my, my life, but I'm going to be faithful to you. I believe in those moments, God's going to do amazing things. And you're going to be so grateful to God that you stayed and that you didn't give up. John said, I am a Adelphos, and I am a Koinonios in your tribulation and in your suffering. Also, I am a fellow laborer with you in the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? In verse 9, when it says, and the kingdom, I believe John MacArthur's right when he says, the kingdom here is the sphere of salvation, the redeemed community over which Jesus reigns as Lord and King. The kingdom is the reign and the rule of King Jesus. Now, I know there's a millennial kingdom. I do believe there is a future millennial kingdom. I also believe there is a future, hallelujah, eternal state kingdom for all time and eternity. But I don't think that's what John's talking about right here. I think he's talking about, I am with you as we propagate, as we promote, as we labor together for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am with you. I'm not above you. I'm not below you. I'm just a brother right in here with you. I am suffering like many of you are suffering, but we're not giving up because we're promoting the kingdom of King Jesus. And thirdly, he says, I am a participant with you in the area of patience. And a better translation, I think, would be in the area of perseverance. Perseverance or endurance. It's the indispensable, do you hear me? The indispensable characteristic to surviving and thriving in the midst of suffering is a perseverance. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, mm, listen to this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured 
the... Anybody know your Bibles? He endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christianity moves on the knees of prayer and on the limbs of dogged determination and perseverance, this bulldog-type mentality that says, God, I'm in it. I am in it for you and for no other reason. And God, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to serve you until the very end. So there's a word of identification, I, John. There's a word of participation when he says, I am your brother and I am your I am your co-laborer, your companion in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patience of Jesus Christ. Now he gives us a word of explanation. He explains where he was, and he tells them why uh, he was there. He says in verse 9, it says, I'm on the island that is called Patmos, and the reason I'm here is because of the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let, let Let me paint the picture for you just a little bit as to what... Patmos really looked like. I remember being there about 10 years ago, and we, um, it, was pretty, it was pretty cool. You got to get on a boat, another boat, to get to this small remote island called Patmos. And they have a church that meets there on the Lord's Day. They meet in the very cave where, where historians believe John received the apocalypse. And I remember peering into that cave, and it was full of people, full of God's people in there worshiping on the Lord's Day. But this is what it was like then. The conditions under which John lived would have been very harsh. Exhausting labor under the watchful eye and the ready whip of a Roman overseer. Insufficient food and clothing. And having to sleep on the bare ground would have taken its toll on a 90-year-old man. It was on that bleak, barren island under those brutal conditions that John received the most extensive revelation of the future uh, ever, ever given. I think it's interesting that John says, the reason I'm here is because I have taken a stand for the Word of God and for the testimony of our Lord. And I know that it is costly. Let me just say, guys, I I really believe if if the Lord tarries and He allows us to stay, I think it's going to be incredibly intense and hostile to be a follower of Jesus in America. I really do. I I believe that we're we're just seeing the, the precursors I mean, listen, guys, we, we, we take a stand for something so basic, so axiomatic as, as life begins in the womb. The most dangerous place now to live in America is a mother's womb. The most dangerous place, millions upon millions of babies have been slaughtered. And you and I, we're like, that's not right. We stand up against it. And you think we're some demon. You think that we're just some ridiculous. Then we say, well, we believe that marriage ought to be between a man and a woman. I mean, not, not trying to condemn anybody. not trying to get in anybody's stuff. But we're just saying the Bible says it ought to be between a man and a woman. Man, the youth, you, you, they vilify us. They demonize us. I believe that is just the precursor to a greater day of persecution that is coming to the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, buddy, you better get ready. I was telling my son not long ago, Bryant, you're going to be a pastor. You better work this out. Because you're probably going to suffer, and I'm probably going to suffer because of this basic stand for the gospel. I'm in a world preacher who would have ever thought we, we would be on the verge of being persecuted because we just believe in life and we believe in marriage. What has our nation come to? It's the hand of God, it's the judgment of God about to fall on our nation. It could. 
He could, he could say, you know, Ruth Graham Bell said, if God doesn't punish our nation, he has to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we're doing the very same things that they were doing. I mean, my land at the uh, Academy Awards, you know, they're up there marrying all these, these homosexual couples. And I'm like, oh, God, forgive us. Help mercy on our land. Listen, friend, you may not think that's a big deal. God thinks it's a big deal. He is offended. He is, he is violated by those kind of things. And if we're not offended and we're not violated, do we know him? Do we, do, John says, oh, Brother Danny, y'all, y'all about to suffer? Welcome to the family of God. <laughs> and that's what you get when you take a strong stand for the gospel. Sometimes you get persecuted and sometimes it even will take your life. And he's given us an explanation. He says, that's why I'm here. And by the way, Paul said, yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you suffered anything for following Jesus? In America, man, we, we, we get so far away from persecution. We get so far away from anything controversial because we're afraid that it may cost us our reputation, may cost us our job. Man, I want to come alongside you and say, listen, guys, you just might be called to suffer. And you may be called to lay down your life, yea, even here in the grand old United States of America. But there are some things worth living for, and there are some people worth dying for, and he's one of them. The king is. You know, it's interesting. When you study a sermon, you, you preach it, you never know how it's going to come out. And I was preaching, and I was almost in Louisiana yesterday. I was preaching my heart out twice in a conference. And, um, you know, and I had a great time. And then tomorrow I'm going to be preaching in Houston. I love to, to preach. But I'm telling you what, I couldn't wait to get here and preach. I mean, I just could not wait to talk to you. Because I believe God... I believe God is really working in our church. And there is no other church, there's no other place on the planet that I would rather be than right here, right now, on the verge, on the breakthrough, maybe of some hard times, and maybe for some unbelievable times. So, prepared the sermon, have no idea how it's coming out, just hope you receive it. If you don't, you can leave, I guess. But anyhow, we're, we're going to keep going here. Identification, no, no, please don't misunderstand me. I didn't say, if you, you, you don't like me, or you can leave. You know, and I, and, I, and I used to do that. About three years ago, I used to say stuff like that. I did. I used to say, well, if you don't like it and leave, I'm sorry. I don't think I should have said that. He said, well, Brother Danny, you're a pastor. Aren't you wholly sanctified? No, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And if I've offended anybody and it wasn't the Lord convicting you, then I apologize. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, inspiration. In verse 10, he tells us how he received the book of Revelation. It's so fascinating when you read different scholars. They, all dis- they seem to all disagree. In verse 10, it, they, many people believe in the Spirit on the Lord's day... It means a whole lot, a whole lot of things. I, I think it's really simple. I think John is saying, like Ezekiel chapter two, I was in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just elevated me. I had my cognitive abilities and so forth, but I was in this spiritual way. 
And the Holy Spirit was just in me, and He was speaking to me, and He was revealing to me what it is that I was to write. Some people say the Lord's Day here refers to the Day of Judgment. I don't think so. I just think it's very simple that it was on a Sunday, that it was the Lord's Day, He received the apocalypse, and now He's about to give it to us. And that leads me to 5, the proclamation. In verses 10 and 11, He said, I was on the, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me, a loud voice. In the Greek it says megalephone. I love saying that. Megalephone. Mega loud phonetics or phonograph, if you will. A voice, a loud noise. In verse 12, I can't wait till next week. In verse 12, he turns around and he sees the one who is speaking. But in verse 11, he, he hears this voice behind him. Can you imagine? You're John, and you're on the, in, on, a, on the Lord's day, and the Holy Spirit, you just feel the Spirit of God speaking to you, and you hear this voice behind you, and it's the voice of God. And it's the voice like the sound of a trumpet. In verse 15, it's the voice of the sound of many waters. I was reading Psalm 29 this week, and I want you to listen to the voice of the Lord, how the voice of God is described. The voice of the Lord is over many waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He makes them skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Hallelujah. Strips the forest bare. And everybody in the temple says, glory, when the voice of the Lord comes. And John heard that voice. And that voice said these words, John, I am Alpha and I am Omega, the first and the last. We looked at this earlier. In, in Revelation chapter 1, we looked at this descriptive verse of Jesus saying, and, and the Father saying, I am the beginning, I am the end, I am everything in between, I am Alpha and Omega, I am the beginning and the end. And this is what he says. And what you see, John, I give you the command, you are to write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia in uh, Ephesus. Uh, I, I think we're going to pull up and look at the, uh, the map one more time. I want to show you, it's, it's really fascinating when... If you went due north from Miletus, you would come, first of all, to where you see Patmos out there in the Aegean Sea. But just due north would be Ephesus. And if you notice, this is the order in which God gives these uh, cities to John. Because these are all churches. Ephesus was the one John served at. And there are seven of these. And it's an old postal district. It's the way they delivered the, the mail, if you will, back then. The writer would go first to Ephesus, then to Smyrna... And then come on around to Laodicea. And Jesus said, it's already set. Take this book, write this book. And when you go give it to the pastor at Ephesus, what, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I think happens. The, the pastor at Ephesus takes this book and he reads it to the congregation and then they make a copy of it. And they send the original on over to the, to the next city and then come on around to the other city. And that is Jesus' design. He says, I want you to make sure that my people have a copy of this book. And aren't you glad? Because here we are today with a copy of that very Word of God that was given to the aged uh, apostle. Man, what a message. What a proclamation. I, I don't know 
I don't know what all you're about to face as you depart from here, and I don't know what all I'm about to face. But I do want to be found faithful, carrying the message of the gospel to the next generation if the Lord tarries. And just when things get bad and when times get hard, the last thing I want to do is bail out. I want to stay until God does everything He wants to do in me and through me. This Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was pastoring in June of 1944. The congregation was gathered there at Westminster Chapel. And by the way, they didn't have a problem with people. They had tons of people. And I think that's what's going to happen at Great Hills. And I think it's going to happen in churches all over America. When our next terrorist strike, attack, or the next great catastrophe and calamity that is coming to America... Uh, we'll probably have to go to two and three and four services because people are going to realize this life is extremely fragile. I listened to a program last night for an hour. It says that most of us have no idea how close we are to a terrorist attack on our, on our grid, on our electronic grid, if you will. And, and overnight it said the movie Revelation, the show of the Revelation, uh, Revolution could become a reality. Just like, just in a moment. I mean, we could, be, we could be catapulted into utter darkness as, as a nation. This was on a, a secular uh, television I was watching, uh, a radio program. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, he is there in, in war. I mean, the V-1 planes, these German pilotless bombers. And I thought that was some cool invention that we did, these drones. Man, the Germans were doing it in the 40s. They would send off these drones, if you will, and they were called V-1 planes, and they killed 10,000 people in London on the first week. Can you imagine losing 10,000 people in a city in one week? And so D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he is standing there, and he hears the V-1 planes. They recognize the hum, and here they come. And they're in church. And the pastor's up there, and he says, let us pray. And the people are like, have you lost your mind? I'm not praying. I'm getting out of here. Do you hear that sound? And he says, no, don't go anywhere. Let, let's just pray. And they did. And he stood there and he prayed and prayed. And did you know that there was destruction and catastrophe all around that church? But the only thing that happened to the church was the vibrations of the bombs. Some of the, some of the dirt and some of the stuff on the roof just kind of trickled down on their heads. Man, what a, what a portrait. What a beautiful, picturesque description. When war and calamity and everything else breaks loose around us, we are faithful to God. We are faithful to the gospel. Uh, come, come what may. Some of you may be here today and, and, and you don't know Christ. You don't have the gospel within you. I, man, I'm pleading with you. I, I don't know that I've ever preached more urgently in 30 years of preaching. I started preaching when I was 17 years of age. And then 19 years of age, I got saved. And my testimony is I'm, I was a whole lot better preacher after I became a Christian. But the only, only thing I've ever known is to preach. I'm serious. That's all I've ever known to do is, is to preach. And as a lost person, I preach. People got saved. But it's wonderful preaching when you know him. But some of you don't know him. And I want to encourage you to know Christ. Know him. Serve him. Yield yourself to him. And those of you that do know him, man, I want to come alongside you. And I want to say, listen, these are the most exciting times to be alive. I mean, we could be the terminal generation. We may not. Jesus may not come back to hundreds of more years in the future. I don't think so. But when he comes, I want to be found faithful. And listen, when you're right in the midst of, of suffering and difficulty, please remember this. It's not that you're outside the will of God, but you're inside the will of God. Last thing I want to share with you is I was watching a, a broadcast uh, with Mark Burnett and uh, 
Oh, Romy Downey. Yes, that her, Roman Downey. You know, Mark Burnett, uh, The Voice, Survivor, The Apprentice, and The Shark Tank, he produced all of those. And he is a big-time, sold-out, vocal follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you knew that or not. But he shared that on The, Vo on the Voice, they have 400 employees that produce The Voice, that work behind the scenes. Fifty of them came to him secretly the other day and said, uh, Brother Mark, we just want you to know, man, we so appreciate you and your love for Jesus Christ. And thank you for producing this film, The Son of God. It's about to come out in 3,000 theaters. It's called The Son of God, and it is going to be on. It's going to be so amazing. And Roma uh, uh, Downey, she was talking about as they were in Morocco filming this. And maybe y'all have heard this, but I heard this for the first time with my own ears. I watched her tell this story. She said, you know, we had a guy, we had to hire a guy that would go out to the set every morning, and he would, his job was to get the snakes. <laughs> How would you like that job? We want you to go get the vipers, brother. Go get the snakes off the set so that we can film the, 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 the film of Christ. So this guy would go out, and he would, on average, catch one to two snakes each day that they were in Morocco, and they were filming this, this amazing film, The Son of God, which, by the way, you perhaps have seen it, called the Bible on the History Channel. She said, well, something very fascinating happened on the day that we filmed the crucifixion. On that day, we asked our guy to go out and clear the set. He said there wasn't one snake, there wasn't two snakes. She said there were 40 snakes, 40 poisonous vipers all around the very scene that we were about to show the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He said, I just want to tell you something. When you start walking with God and you start doing th things like this for God, the enemy will come against you full force. And listen, guys, he does. Ooh, listen to this. Listen to this. Greater is he that is in me, that is in you, than he that is in the world. Glory to God. Revelation 22. Let me, let me just go ahead and tell you the, the, the end. We win. Glory to God. We, we win. We are victorious. You know, I said the last thing I lied. Let me tell you one more thing, okay? I told you I'm still in process, all right? Forgive me. So, I just wonder, on that great day of judgment, when God judges and He says, I gave you every single opportunity known to man. I mean, I even had some of the best producers in Hollywood show a show for you so that you could see firsthand for your eyes you're without excuse. Please don't make that mistake. If you're here today and you haven't committed your life to Christ, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to give you some eschatological scare, manipulation. I'm just saying, listen, guys, it's all real. And Jesus is the king. He's coming again. And you need to know him as your friend before you have to know him as your judge. All right? So let me pray for you, and we'll have our invitation. Lord, we love you. We worship you. You are the king above all kings. You are the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. You are the master. And we gladly bow our knees and our volition, our very hearts before you today because, Lord, you are our God, and we love you very much. Lord, we pray for Great Hills Baptist Church. We ask you, God, that you would help us to be strong and to be faithful in the hour of trial and that we would be a catalyst, Lord. We would be a radiant blast of hope for this city. And that, Lord, you would draw many people into a relationship with you, and we would get the opportunity, Lord, to deepen them and teach them the Word of God. Lord, I pray for those listening today, God. I ask you so much, Jesus, 
If there is someone, maybe it's a teenager, maybe it's a single adult, maybe it's a a senior adult, and they don't know you, they're not ready to meet you, God, I pray that right now you would draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would break that pride and that shell of arrogance. Because really, Lord, that's probably what it is more than anything. That I don't need you, God. I've got everything that I need. But, Lord, they do need you. And I pray that you'd reveal that uh, to them. Lord, I just pray now during this time of invitation, the Spirit of the living God would just fall fresh on us. And that we would sense, Lord, you working and you honoring your word. And then, Lord, there may be some of us who just need to get on our face before you on this altar and say, God, forgive us. For when times get tough, Lord, instead of seeking to serve you and be deeper, Lord, I I seek to leave and, and to give it to somebody else. Lord, forgive us of that. Lord, I pray for these brothers and sisters that are with us today, God, that are about to go out from among us. And they're going to serve you all over this globe. Lord, would you use them? Would you raise them up? Would you infill them with the power of the Holy Spirit? And may they, Almighty God, give you their absolute best. We do pray for their protection. We do pray that you would bless them. But more than that, God, we pray that you would use them to the maximum of the glory of the King above all kings. The one who suffered for us. The one who died. The one who was placed in a tomb. And glory to God, the one who lives and he reigns. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.